This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line, but rarely do successful people get from point A to point B taking the most direct route. Host Jeffrey Klein speaks to a diverse mix of people to explore their story of success and the dots connected along the way. Thank you for listening. Here's your host, Jeffrey. This episode is full of improvisation, which makes perfect sense as I chat with my friend, jazz academic and performer, Dr. Bill Bears. Bill shares his advice that he would give to his younger self, which is, don't conceal your enthusiasm. Well, I can't conceal my enthusiasm for how much I enjoyed my conversations with Bill and to listening him to actually playing the piano. Have a listen. My guest today is Dr. Bill Bears, Associate Professor of Music at University of North Carolina, Asheville. Dr. Bears received his PhD in Ethnomusicology from Harvard University, as well as a Master's in Jazz Performance from the University of Miami. Dr. Bears taught at Harvard, Brown, Berkeley College of Music, and the New England Conservatory before becoming Director of Jazz Studies at the University of North Carolina, Asheville. He teaches dynamic courses such as African-American music, slavery to swing, harmony and improvisation, and music and environmental consciousness. Dr. Bears is the author of Jazz and the European Dream, the Transatlantic Eternal Triangle. He also has published articles in American Music, Jazz Research Journal, the Grove Directory of American Music, Jazz and Culture, among others. An active pianist and music promoter, Dr. Barris has coordinated jazz festivals, performed at numerous jazz venues, as well as having recorded both standards and original composed music. Please welcome Dr. Bears. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Um, and of course, Bill is one of my closest friends. I should state that for the record. We went to college together, we're roommates, and got up to a lot of mischief. Uh, Bill, I like to start at the beginning. So where were you born and what did your parents do for a living? I was born in St. Cloud, Minnesota. That's where my parents are from. And um, we moved pretty quickly um, after I was born. My dad needed to make ends meet, so he joined the military. And uh, um, that's why we travel around a lot when I was a kid. We ended up in Bellevue, Nebraska, which is the home of Strategic Air Command when I was four. So that's actually where I ended up growing up all the way through high school. And that's just outside of Omaha? That's just outside of Omaha. Home of Warren Buffett? Home of Warren Buffett. Exactly. Exactly. And what did your parents, so your dad was, he wasn't a, a military man. Not per se. He's a scientist. Um, he's a physicist and he worked uh, meteorology, not the weather, not the, not the weatherman you see on TV, but the hardcore number crunching they were doing downstairs in one of those kind of bunker situations where they were, it's called global weather. They were working with some of the first computers and, and predicting flight patterns and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and at what point I know he became, you know, uh, an eye doctor and surgeon. When did that medical school, how did that fit into when he, had he already gone to medical school? Did he do that once he had already gone to military? He, How did that he saw it had in the paper at some point. And it was basically like, you know, had a thing to do with like, you know, med school and military kind of thing. And so the military ended up paying his way through med school. And then he owed them three years of service after that. So it wasn't until I think when I was in eighth grade is when he started practicing medicine privately. Um, 
And that was a much different kind of lifestyle after that um, for us in the family. And it was before that. It felt like a military family before that. Hmm. So uh, having that interesting kind of perspective of the scientist, military, medicine, uh, when you were a kid growing up, did you have any idea of like what you wanted to be when you grew up? Did you think about either medicine or military or? <laughs> I tried to keep my options open. Yeah, I, I was like, okay, I could do anything because my dad has done a lot of stuff. So, um, so I was pre-med. Yeah, all the way, all the way through college, I was pre-med. In fact, I'm a couple of classes short of being able to just go straight into med school. Um, and then I also got really into, in, in high school, really into debate. That was another huge passion of mine. Ended up going to national debate finals and was second run, runner-up in, in the state uh, debate competition. And so, like, you know, um, I, I thought politics and sort of gabbing for a living was something I wanted to do. And then there's, like, a third option, which was, like, music was a huge part of, of my high school experience, especially. And so I kind of kept all those plates spinning uh, in college. I'm very familiar with the, the plate spinning uh, analogies. <laughs> I, I feel like I continue to do that every day. Yeah. Um, was there anyone growing up, other, you know, that you looked at as a role model, whether it was your father or was there anyone else kind of that you're like, that guy's got it going on? Or uh, Growing up, yeah. I mean, you know, as a, teen, I, 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 as a father of a teenager right now, I can say that... Um, Sometimes your parents, I would say as a teenager, maybe you don't recognize that them for what they are until a little bit later. So he's definitely a role model now, but you know, back then you just want to carve out your own identity. So all of my role models, really the people who I've looked at and said, that's the kind of life I want, um, happened in college, uh, in high school, it was more like I knew what I didn't want. You know, I can sort of look at stuff and say, that's not for me. Um, it's important, I think, for people yeah. to figure out, you know, yeah. we talk about, oh, yes, the, you know, you need to focus on what you want. But sometimes I think it's overwhelming and knowing things you definitely don't want is a good thing to know. For sure. I mean, some of the role models I had were like movie stars or whatever, you know, like people that were famous. Um, but, you know, I knew I had to get out of that community to see the world. I just knew it instinctively. I had to get out of Bellevue, Nebraska. And so when I was looking around me in Bellevue, Nebraska, obviously nobody that had stayed there was my role model. <laughs> um, but looking back, I can say without a doubt that all the people that were put in my life at that point were like hugely influential, like, you know, especially the band, band teacher, debate teacher, some of the, some of the science teachers, you know, and all it takes is, as you know, all it takes is one choice word or one choice compliment at a certain point in your development. And then you just, you know, you owe them forever kind of thing. Uh, speaking of music, which is kind of your chosen and academic teacher, when, it, you know, I know your, your father is very musical. Your, I know at least one of your brothers is very musical and your mother. Uh, when did you first, did music become important? What, what less, uh, instrument did you learn to play first? You know, when did that all happen? Did it happen young? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I played piano when I was pretty young. My mom taught me, um, and she just taught me by ear. So I didn't learn to read music until much later. Hmm. Um, and when I did learn to read music, it was on trumpet. So whenever I'm reading piano music now, that's split into two clefs. 
and trumpet is just the top clef. Mm -hmm. So my right hand can read really well. And my left hand is kind of lagging behind most of the time. And um, so, but anyway, that was, I think her introduction to me playing piano um, and me playing sort of like asking her to teach me. It wasn't like, sit down, I'm going to show you this. It was like, that sounds really good. Let me learn. And so I would just kind of sit down, she would show me, and then I would figure out the rest by ear. And that experience has been like, so important, I would say, for the way I approach music. And um, the fact that she didn't, or they didn't set me down in front of a teacher and make me do that is one of the reasons that I stuck with it. Yeah, I'm curious about that dynamic. Not not only the kind of like a lot of people are told, you will take piano lessons and you have to do that. And so there's obviously the, the difference between coming to music versus being forced into music. And then the second piece, which I find interesting is the learning by ear versus learning to read music. Yeah. And so I'm curious, do you, you know, I, I'm getting the sense from the, your answer that the freedom of, of not being forced into it clearly made a big difference. What about the difference of learning to have a good ear as opposed to learning the notes? Yeah. I mean, it's just, I think it sent me into the direction of playing jazz as opposed to classical music. You know, but now I'm coming, I'm sort of finding my way into classical music too. And, um, and that's fun, but um, no question. And, you know, I think that there's an, there's an element of allowing yourself to emerge as you are improvising that is kind of unmatched. Like if you're just sitting around and noodling and suddenly you're starting to compose stuff and stuff is starting to come out of you as a high schooler, even you're starting to like, you're letting the instrument help you find out who you are. And that's a pretty cool experience. And so I felt like I was on pretty stable ground by the end of high school for having done that. Um, and then, you know, but, but most of my high school experience and really my formative experience starting after fourth grade was pretty trumpet centric. And what, what did, so I assume you chose to want to play the trumpet. What made you want to choose that instrument? I thought it was like, loud and cool <laughs> and were there trumpeters you look you know were there kind of the classic and was jazz where originally what you had thought the kind of music you wanted to play mm -hmm. i mean i always thought jazz was like like more more like edgier i guess mm -hmm. and so but you know it wasn't until high school my band director's wife actually uh got tickets for me and him and her to go see winton marsalis quartet downtown and I just remember uh, not understanding. Like it was <laughs> heavy. I, the only thing I understood was that it was heavier than anything I'd seen before. And I didn't get it. But that that actually put the seed in my brain of like, okay, there's there's way more to this than just playing high notes. Hmm. Um, He's amazing. I've seen him as well in person a couple of times. I think we may have seen him. It's uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've crossed paths with that with that uh, person so many times. And, you know, we've only said a few words to each other, but he's always been incredible with, um, with musicians. And I would say, especially trumpeters, it's like insane. The, the lengths to which he will go out of his way to say a kind word or help somebody out. So that's very cool to hear. Yeah. Um, let me, you know, my focus is on the power of story. So I want to go back for a moment and ask about 
when you were growing up, was there anyone, whether it was a teacher or a family member, who were really good at telling stories? And, and if so, what made them so good? That's interesting. Ellie, a, a person from high school you're talking about, or? In your growth, we'll call it from, you know, young, you know, four years old, starting Bellevue, you know, up to college. Was yeah. Was that kind of stood out? You're like, you love listening to them tell a story. They're really good at capturing your attention. Yeah, for sure. My grandfather was uh, an excellent storyteller. He was um, Polish immigrant. And uh, the thing about him is that he was like a hunter fisher. He was in World War II. He was in the Navy. And he was just full of bullshit fishing tales. <laughs> the big fish. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he had like kind of a deep booming voice. He was always like, it was all performative as, as much as it was the content of the story. And I know that you're into, into the, the way oh. stories unfold, mm -hmm. but for him, it was more just the facial expressions and the manner in which he would say something just drew you in immediately. And, uh, and then, you know, he'd tell a story, right. And then my dad would pull him, he, my dad's a scientist. He'd pull me aside. I'd only be like, you know, seven or eight. My dad would be like, you don't believe that. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> And your so, yin and yang about yeah, so that was kind of awesome. <laughs> uh, so you you we were in the band, the jazz band in, in high school. Yeah, and then you went. Uh, I know you. I saw you perform in college, and you were amazing. And then you switched back to piano. Why? Yeah, I mean that's a, a fateful event. Actually, it's amazing. Uh, some people's lives can be turned upside down literally overnight. And, um, and they might not even realize that that happened, right? That they're, they're literally, their life got turned upside down. They, they, an event happened and they didn't realize that it got turned upside down. That was certainly me, uh, sophomore year, summer, um, jumping on a trampoline drunk with a bunch of friends. And, uh, one of them came up as I was coming down and he came up under my chin and I bit all the way through my lip. Ouch. And, um, we were at a lake house and, Rather than spoil the fun, I just kind of passed out. And the next day I woke up looking like the elephant man. You know, it was like an incredibly bad situation. And so it took six months to heal. And after that, the playing was not really the same. I've had a surgery to have the scar tissue removed and it's grown back. And so it's just a different, different world. And How so hard was that to realize you could no longer play trumpet or trumpet at the level you were? Um, the thing was, you know, I was in college. I was more concerned about, I think, the way I looked than anything else. And then, and then also, like, I had so many other irons in the fire or plates spinning, as we were talking about, that I just kind of, like, you know, pivoted. Um, but, <laughs> but looking back, what, what it ended up doing was it uh, forced me to, if I wanted to keep doing music, you know, pivot to a different instrument, which is piano. And at some point, I just actually pretty quickly I discovered, hey, wait, like in a jazz ensemble, when you're playing piano, you're playing all the time and you're playing with two hands and you're not just playing like, you know, anyway, you're kind of like in the middle of the whole action and you're, and so, and so. And that excited you or? or oh yeah, I was like, wow, that's a whole, that's a whole new world. You know, you've got not just a melody over the top, but you've got like rhythmic possibilities. You've got this whole orchestra at your command. Um, and so that was like, okay, this is where, this is obviously where I need to go now. 
I'm curious. So, you know, there are a lot of people I come across who feel like, oh, the moment's passed. I'm too old to do this or I didn't get a chance to do that. To have that kind of shift. Now, obviously, you had music talent in you, but to take on a new instrument when you'd kind of, I don't want to say master, but you'd reach a pretty high level with the trumpet to then shift to something which you could understand was going to be hard. I mean, you're telling me now that the the requirements of what the piano does in, in, from the jazz perspective seems to me has more moving parts than when you're just playing trumpet. So Absolutely. did that, were you not worried? Oh my God, I have to start over. How am I going to get as good at this as I was at that? Any of those kinds of things go? You don't yeah. sound like you were concerned. Well, so you mentioned earlier the role models, right? So one emerged at that time in my life, his name is Andy Jaffe. And I was like, I was looking at him going, that's the life I want. I think like for the first time I can kind of see like that, that is a cool life. Like, and it, you know, I had those other plates spinning. And so I, I didn't really recognize it so explicitly as I'm telling you now, but I looked at him and I was like, yeah, this guy's so fulfilled. Like he's playing, he's teaching and he's mentoring. And like the good thing about, and I think this is this is probably a bad thing to say as a professor, but I would say that 90% of what I learned in college, I have forgotten. But the one thing that I, the 10% that I didn't forget mostly has to do with physical stuff that I learned, like how to play an instrument and like how to, you know, like that stuff never leaves you. And so I really started getting into that stuff. And um, I think that he, he sort of like, embodied as a piano player, composer, arranger, also like ran every morning. It was like a marathon runner. He just had like, um, and I'll say this about musicians in all kinds of musicians, but jazz musicians in particular, the best thing about it is that I know a lot of people nowadays uh, as a 48 year old, my age who have, don't have that thing that's like pulling them forward. And if you get into jazz as a musician, you will never run out of things to check out or try to improve. That's always like a part of who you are. You're never satisfied. And that's like the beautiful thing about it, actually, you know? Um, so I recognized by that point that this was going to be like a lifelong journey. So I wasn't super concerned that I sucked initially. You know? <laughs> well, it's funny because when I used to listen to you having, you know, had one year of piano and giving up before I learned to read music, you're way ahead of me, you know, <laughs> in the first month. To what I, um, so so let's go back. You learned the piano when you were pretty young. And I, I love that we have a piano where you are. If you Can you play kind of the first, you know, tune that you really, I don't want to say master, but that you felt like you could play really well sure. on the piano? You want me to move to a piano view here? Yeah, let's see the piano view. Okay, hopefully this is going to work for you. See me? I see the piano. Awesome. Okay. So this is, uh, you probably heard this piece before. Uh, maybe I'll just play it first and then okay. you can. And I don't know how much time, you know, this is probably total, you know, like this would probably be like a four or five minute song total. So give us the first minute and a half to two minutes.
Stephanie goes on. That's now let's see. I'm not a music aficionado, but I believe is that Beethoven? Well, um uh thanks for playing. It's close. Bach? Uh Mozart. you got you got one other option. Mozart. Yeah, there you go. I should have picked that first. Most 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 pieces are. Now I'm thinking of Amadeus. I remember him playing in the movie. See, I refer things back to movies. Uh-huh. So, um, amazing. So do you think it's harder to play classical or jazz? Um, I think it's... For you. I, I, for, you. I, for me, personally, um, they're both hard. I, I, I don't think that that's... Yeah, I think that there's... There's stuff in both of them that make them uniquely hard. They're different. Um, although lately my passion is trying to figure out the moments of the, the elements of kind of similarity. Um, but yeah, I would say that for classical music, the big thing is like I play, I record myself, and then I listen to the great masters like Horowitz or Alfred Brendel or one of these people. And I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's the level of perfection that I... <laughs> I'm not current. That's a standard of perfection that I'm not currently holding for myself. And, um, and that's been really interesting, you know, cause that apply music is life. And so I feel like mm. I believe in that phrase of sort of, there is a, there is some truth into like in the adage of how you do one thing is sort of how you do everything. And so I'm sort of like, okay, my imperfection in, in addressing this music is kind of cluing me into maybe some other elements of my life that I need to check out. So mm. with jazz, I think the difficulty in it is really, um, it confronts you pretty early on with who you are and you are trying to bring a refined who you are to the table. And as we all know, that's, that's, that's a huge challenge. And that's a very interpersonal kind of thing. So you have to slot into situations and you may be realizing that the seasoning that you're bringing to the table is not necessarily the seasoning that the group is going to want or that's going to be best for the group. And so getting that stuff together is tough. And then there's some athletic rhythmic stuff in it that didn't come naturally to me as a Midwesterner <laughs> born into a military family. <laughs> and... Um, that continues to be fun to check out. And then the last thing about jazz is that it kind of draws from everything. So if you're, if you're really into jazz, you're really into, you're saying, are you good at jazz? You're really asking, are you good at music? Cause there's like mm. so much out there that's found its way in. Mm. You know? I'm going to go back for a moment because I like to kind of connect the dots along your life. Um, and I know you've done lots of different things, even in your path to here. Did, what was your first paying job? So I worked in my dad's optical shop. So first I was a cleaning person and uh, that was like a <laughs> low paying 14 year old job all the way through high school. I would do that. I would lock up, I would do it whenever. My job was to do it sometime between 5 p.m. and by the time it opened the next day. And so with my weird high school schedule, I would just have to find a time. I had the keys and I had a car after 16. And then um, when I got back for summers, after I got to college, I would work in the optical shop. So I learned how to fit glasses and do that whole thing. And, um, and then those were really, I don't know, those were easy, I would say easy jobs. The first real job I got, that was like nine to five kind of deal uh, outside of school was 
uh, working in Washington, D.C. for a member of Congress for a year. And, and that turned uh, you, that made you want to do politics more or less. So, yeah, right. I told you about those spinning plates. Mm. And um, I had initially gone there to work for an institute recommended by one of the professors in my poli-sci department, which is what I majored in. And the institute was going to be like a nuclear disarmament kind of work group. And I was like super idealistic and who doesn't want that? <laughs> you know, that's a, still a big threat. And I grew up, I should mention, right? That I grew up at the epicenter of what would be like a, a nuclear uh, catastrophe. Like we would be first hit. And so like my childhood was punctuated with air raid sirens on Saturday mornings and, and really being kind of scared of that. So that was a passion of mine. I didn't get that job, but I still had committed to moving to DC. So I kind of moved around. I was working for the DNC for a minute. Um, and that was a disaster because as I was working for them, that was the season where the contract with America and Newt Gingrich and that whole thing, it was like a, just a, a, a landslide for the Republicans. And so I was like, okay, well that, a bad experience too so and then and then i worked for uh this member of congress and money rules everything as i discovered um and that's you cool think that you know I, I do i mean i think maybe there's a little bit of pushback against that um since i was there because i know that when i was there there were free meals provided by lobbyists for staffers uh like every day of the week and uh there was a lot of fast and loose stuff going on so and you know it's not like i'm super like moralist but i was just looking at it going i'm looking at my colleagues you know they're doing this for a living and they just seem a little bit sycophantic and not really i don't know i have too much like independence of thought maybe to to do that so i've i only did that for a year and then I went back to Nebraska and worked in a coffee shop for a year. That was fun too. And then I started playing out and doing gigs and stuff like that. And uh, ever since then, it's either been academic jobs or playing music. So perfect. You, you've segued perfect to my next question, which is, would you consider yourself a musician who happens to be an academic or an academic who happens to be a musician? That's a great question. Um, that's a great question. You know, I, I basically was interested in going to graduate school initially to become a musician. So went to the university of Miami, um, and just met my wife there. We moved to Europe. I was playing over there. And then I moved to New York and I was playing there, got my name on the marquee at Cleopatra's needle was kind of working my way up through the system. And then I applied to graduate schools mostly because my wife sat me down and was like, this is unsustainable, dude. Cause she was working at a bank, <laughs> right? So she was up at 6 a.m. As I was coming home, she was going to work. And so it was just like, uh, not gonna work. Oh, so she was saying it was unsustainable, not in terms of you making a living, but in terms of your relationship. Both, both, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was a charmed year though, cause she was making all the money and I was doing all of the partying, essentially at clubs, I was playing, but I was also like having fun and uh, and so I appreciate her for that, but we, we, so I applied to Columbia. I really wanted to go to Columbia university, stay in New York and do both. Um, but I ended up not getting into Columbia and getting into Harvard 
full ride or whatever. Poor, good, poor, good package. Poor yeah. <laughs> so what is kind of weird about that though, is that I uprooted and moved to Boston, which is a much more puritanical city in a lot of ways. Like there's tons and tons of musicians and very few places to play. Mm. It's not like New York in that way. And it closes down really early. Like the whole town clock kind of closes down at like one or something or 12. And so I just, for the next 10 years, basically from 2001 to 2000, actually 2002 to 2011 were the years that I was there. I just didn't play. It was super weird. I just like, and it was not Did only you that. Feel like, your, something was missing? Yeah. And what, what really fueled the blues was that I was not only not playing music, I was reading about the people who write about music. I was so far removed from the actual process of playing music that it, it started to kind of drive me crazy. And so when I got to Asheville, whereas there's probably as many places to play as like New York, but there's only a fraction of the people. And so I just like went banana bananas. I just played every night I was doing, I was just, it was fun. I was meeting everybody. And so I would consider maybe that I was more of a musician at that point. I was more of an academic before. I'm trying to find that balance now, you know? So you don't have to pick. Yeah. I was going to say it, it's kind of determined by location and stage of life uh, a little bit. What, what, what element gets more attention? Like I had this book project that I was super fired up to do. Right. And I moved down here and it was still part of the tenure game and I'm still like this close to turning it in. I mean, essentially it's been edited by the series editors and all I have to do is a few more things, but it's just, it feels like it's not as much of a priority as it used to be. And, uh, you know, I'm sure. And does having tenure, I mean, I was listening to Adam Grant, who's a social uh, scientist, who's a professor at, um, at Wharton who's written the book Give and Take. And he was talking on a podcast today, or I should say the one I listened to earlier about whether there should be tenure for professors. And he was saying in Europe, some certain parts of Europe, they're actually experimenting with five and tenure contracts. But he was saying one of the things about tenure is that for you, it helps attract talent because the idea is that if you put in the time, then you get tenure and you've got security. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that now that you're tenured, you sort of have job security? I mean, I think they're just considering like reducing some of the, or uh, creating new conditions under which you could be fired at like the University of Kansas system. And so I feel like that stuff is is under attack and maybe on the way out. Um, so in that sense, I'm kind of glad that I got it. Um, but I will say that one of the things it does is it, it, um, it creates, an intense amount of productivity the people that are seeking it <laughs> you know right now, it's but, an incentive to produce but that being said given our mcdonaldized culture anyway it really is more about efficiency and quantity than quality sometimes and so i kind of worry about that just as a as um you know if we just set up a series of quantity-based requirements mm. for academics, it's not really gonna do a very good thing. So it's, it's like ticking the box of you've done, you published this many journal, peer reviewed, you've done this, and yep. then you can say, okay, now you've passed the test and you get 
you know, and I'll be honest with you. Actually, this is like, this is like real, like, this is post-tenure, post-tenure talk now. But I sort of feel like now I'm free to actually really think about stuff. Like, you know, like the other stuff was to impress, but now it's like, how about now I actually grapple honestly, you know, in a non-pressured way with like some things that are pretty deep. Right. And There's the pressure of pre-tenure that limits potential creativity and innovation and things you might pursue because you're like, I got to focus and do what I think I need to do to get the tenure. It's I mean, interesting yeah. dynamic. Yeah. I don't want to linger too long on it, but it does structure your life in an interesting way. And some people like that. And I think for a, for a time anyway, I kind of liked it. It was like, okay, well, there's a binary result that I'm after and it's just very easy. Like I can just, okay. And it's interesting to me because as an academic, having that, you know, we were talking about you being an academic and a musician. Yeah. And so in that environment of trying to get tenure, it was very, you need to do this, you need to do that. But that seems to go in, in the face of improvisation and jazz and freedom and, and all the other things that are clearly a part of who you are. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's, um, it's about, it's about like, you know, music and academia. And the other thing is like academics, uh, get a bad rap sometimes is, you know, like not having these kind of cushy schedules, but I, I, my, that's not my experience at all. And maybe it's just like a function of like the people I was around, but this stuff is on your, the, the academic stuff, like the feeling like you need to research and write and produce and, and also be of service and different kinds of things that's on your mind 24 seven. So you may teach 12 hours a week, whatever, but you are not released from that on the weekends or at, at, in the evenings at all. And so, um, so that has somewhat interfered with the creativity, like, you know, cutting off that part of it. And anyway, speaking of, I want to, I want to ask you a question that uh, occurred to me, which is, you know, I talk about story and, and we talk about the power of story, both in terms of, you know, for me, videos and, and, and writing. And, but it, it occurs to me that good music is really about telling a story. Do, do you agree with that? That music is in it's in some in a lot of forms is about telling a story. It's kind of funny you mentioned that because that's exactly what Wynton Marsalis talks about in his clinics, like all really the time. A smart guy. Yeah, yeah, and and you can hear it in his playing, you know. And um, but I think the the beauty with jazz is that the storytelling is not just about um, the words on paper, it's about the way you tell the story. You know, I, I can give you a, a good, I think a, a good example of that. They say that Louis Armstrong basically invented American popular singing. And that seems pretty extreme, right? But if you think about, and if you listen to the recordings of everything that came pre Louis Armstrong, <clears throat> what you heard was the singer selling the composer's song you know what i'm talking about so you'd buy the record with the idea that you're listening to this composer's song and this person did a great rendition of it they were fairly you know true to the composer's intentions and only after louis armstrong did you buy the record because of the performer and you no longer really cared about the composer you know or the or being true to the way the composer intended the song to be and so so that um, i'm going to ask you an interesting question based on that so can someone uh, i guess it would if you're a composer and performer so you're one yeah. of the, you, you compose your music and you play your music is it possible then for someone to play it better than you even though you wrote the music i hate to use the word better 
but you know, but there are people that I would say, oh, that's clearly better. There's no, you know, so, but better than the original. There's, there's one, I think there's one kind of cool example out there where that might be true. There's a guy named George Shearing who write, who wrote, he's a blind pianist from Britain who wrote Lullaby of Birdland, which is like a jazz standard and lots of people play it. And it's a great song. It's like beautiful. And he plays it great. And there's a pianist named Errol Garner who has a version of that, that even, that even George Shearing acknowledged is, is actually better. <laughs> uh, so, like it goes to the point of the fact that there's the music, the notes, and then there's the performance. Yeah. And so you could have the same tune played on day one by the same person. Yeah. And then on day, you know, three weeks later, a year later, they're playing the same tune, but it's a different experience. Totally. But uh, there is that kind of like thing, and this is maybe what interests me about classical music versus jazz. There's this like expectation, especially in the classical world, especially mid-century or like the first part of the 21st century, 20th century, that you should play the notes exactly as written and that it's very easy to discern what the composer intended and that's what you should do. That's the job of the performer. And um, it's thank, thanks to jazz and other kinds of music like that, uh, we're kind of getting away from that concept, which I think is cool. Well, it's interesting. I watched, uh, I love, uh, there's a show, Undercover Boss, where the mm -hmm. boss of a corporation will go under. And uh, the one I watched last was about a baker. Okay. A chain of bakeries. And she went undercover to one of her bakeries and the local franchisee had tweaked her recipe. Huh. <laughs> and she was kind of like, no, it takes 12 cups of powdered sugar. <laughs> uh -huh. No more, no less. And it was, but this woman had, had said, we, we've tried it and it's better. And so at the end, I think after she got her ego in check, she said, I want actually you to come back and help us look at our recipes to see if they need tweaking or not. And so yeah. it was an interesting, uh, you know, I think when you create something, you write something, you want it, it's hard to, you know, to see it any other way than the baby that you created. Right. Um, and so I'm curious, because I know you, you write music. Yep. Um, have you ever had music you've written played by someone else and gone, oh, you're doing it all wrong? Not enough. I would like to have that happen. I, I, I really would like to have like some great musicians get a hold of my stuff and see what comes out of that. I think it would be really fun to hear. Um, and I want to just go back to, you know, I, I asked you, is is there a better version? Yeah. And, you know, obviously, I think, again, art is kind of in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. So is there objectivity in jazz in terms of whether something is good or bad? I would say no. I mean, everybody's got their own set of experiences and artistic standards and frameworks that they bring to it. And so I think that you, sh you should have the freedom to appreciate stuff however you want. That being said, I feel like not enough people are really um, super deep into uh, the conceptual frameworks brought to jazz by black communities actually. And I think that's because a lot of white critics are, are up in jazz. So I think that it's important for my students to see that there's other frameworks for interpreting this stuff. And maybe you can, you can start appreciating these frameworks that way. And, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of my white students get upset when I suggest to them that the primary innovators in this idiom 
have been African-American. They freak out. Uh, there's a kind of an like entitlement of like, well, what about, you know, they spring up all the exceptions. And I'm like, I don't know what's what's prompting this. Like, let's just let's just stop resisting for a minute and recognize that Coltrane is a primary artistic influence that, you know, anyway. So uh, so that part of it, you're, you're touching a nerve here a little bit because that part of it is is laced a lace. You know, judgments of quality are kind of interlaced with uh, with politics in the sense that there are scarce resources out there. Not everybody can be booked on a jazz festival, say. And so somebody has to make a determination. Who do I book on this festival? Do I book the best musician, the most saleable musician, whatever it is? And so our choices and so artistic quality kind of gets wrapped up in that. And um, some people are pretty fiercely territorial. You know, and and because um, um, on the flip side, you know, uh, one of the social media gurus I, I used to, uh, who I really think, Gary Vaynerchuk, who talks yeah. about, you know, the market is the market. So the market will tell you whether it's good or not. So you may think you've got the best invention ever, and if no one wants to buy it, then it wasn't very good. Or right you know, now, I guess the, the 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 nuance there is that sometimes you don't have the opportunity. To see whether or not you think whatever, uh, and I don't think it's a straight. There are forces at work. I think that you're alluding to that sometimes interfere with certain uh, opportunities of, of equally good um, quality. Right. So to be yeah, I mean, I would hate to be a festival pro programmer, right? Uh, for this reason, like your primary audiences for jazz these days are white. The number of people that are playing jazz right now is growing exponentially around the world and primarily non-African-American musicians now. So the piece of the pie in terms of the number of African-Americans playing this music is actually shrinking. And yet I feel like artistic leadership and artistic centrality is still very much kind of an African-American thing even today. And so judging the, uh, sort of judging the merits of all of that stuff and trying to figure that out as someone who wants to make money, but also do right by jazz, that's a very tricky game. Well, you said earlier that money rules everything. So I guess the question is, can art, um, can art elevate above it? Mm. Yeah, so. I believe that. I, um, I believe that too. Um, especially with like, people are going so direct to consumer with YouTube and all this different stuff. People have called it the Gutenberg revolution, you know, like another Gutenberg revolution. So yeah, there's ways for art to just like transcend all of that stuff. Yeah, and I think the opportunity to share your music in a way is way more open now than it ever was in terms of channels of distribution. For sure, um, yeah. I want to go back to... Um, so a question I had about what you're describing in terms of the explosion of jazz in terms of who's playing it and who's consuming it. Mm -hmm. One piece you didn't answer uh, was who's creating it. Mm -hmm. So is that also shifting away from, because you seem to see leadership at its course still kind of African-American. Is that true in terms of the creation of jazz? Well, I think it's, I think it's sort of like the languages we speak um, are always half somebody else's. I, I really honestly believe that. So like nothing is ever a hundred percent yours anyway. Let's forget that. Um, I, there's, there's lots of different schools of thought on this and I don't want to suggest that I have the market cornered on the right idea on this, 
Um, I've heard this analogy before. I think it's kind of interesting. It's like uh, two things come to mind. One is uh, uh, an African-American music critic who said that he recognized that this music belongs to whoever shows it love, you know? Uh, that's a de facto way of looking at the music, right? That like, no, no, no matter where it started, no matter where it started, however it's doing right now is, you know, it's up to the people that love it and that's, they should have a say in it. Um, I also think about basketball and like, I don't actually know who invented the game of basketball, but nobody cares anymore. Actually, very few people care and very few people care. Like, I'm sure that person would be absolutely astounded at the way the game is being played today. Like just, right. I mean, like, and so what we think about are the people who have just like blown it open and continue to blow it open. And so I think those are the people that we should focus on, you know, the people who are expanding our sense of what this thing can be. Um, and the problem with that is that if it goes too far away from blues, soul, emotion, the stuff that made it resonant in the first place, people start complaining and maybe rightfully so. So I want to uh, shift to the, you know, people who love it. Can you do us a favor and, and get back on the piano and play us a song you love to play? Sure. I have this opportunity for a gifted musician to share their craft, so I'm going to take, a, take advantage of it. All right, cool. Are we back to me again? We got the piano. Okay, I just, I'm gonna say that I love to play all different kinds of music and I'm constantly shifting around, but I was in a singing group in college. We did this song called, it was a, they were called the Zumbais, and we did a song called One Note Samba, which is a song by Antonio Carlos Jobim, and it's Brazilian. And um, anyway, I belong to the Zumbais Facebook group and somebody just put out a request for somebody to to play that song or do a rendition of that song. So this is a song that um, hits me on a number of different levels. It's a great jazz standard, great Brazilian standard, and also something from my college days. So let's see. <laughs>
awesome. Thank you for sharing. That was that was amazing. I, a thought that occurred to me, and and one of the my favorite jazz stories is about the Cone uh, concert that Keith Jarrett played, and so I want to ask you: Does does what you play on matter? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say uh, it's like anything, right? You're given a set of limitations and then you work with that. And so whatever you produce is going to be different on the basis of those limitations. And to the extent that that's art, maybe you don't want to look back on it and say, oh, that sucked. Like the Cold concert, right? It was a limited piano and he probably hated it at the time, but the limitations produced this amazing result. You know, well, one a uh, a production manager from when I worked in the film industry said that the difference between an artist and a craftsman is that an artist can do whatever the hell they want, and no one cares, and they limitless. Where a craftsman is given some parameters, mm. and that, and I think that he talks about even you know Michelangelo, uh, you know when he painted the Sistine Chapel, he only had so much space to do it, you know, and so much time and so many yeah. resources and. And to me, I love that idea of a craftsman and, and crafting something um, in, in art being, being, yeah, I mean, most, most people think of art as just undisciplined. There, there's an element of craft in virtually every good artist. And uh, the reverse is not necessarily true. Although, you know. Um, I think we, we, we think that people are either creative geniuses and that just comes naturally to them. Yeah as yep. opposed to understanding the incredibly hard work yep. that comes with honing their craft. And, and the, I mean, how many hours, when you were, when you were uh, playing, getting your master's in jazz performance, how many hours a week were you practicing? I don't know about a week, but per day, it was like between eight and 12 for about a year. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and then I developed some problems, like physical problems that prevented me from keeping going with that. So I kind of backed it off, but yeah, it was like, but that's not that uncommon was, for people at the highest level have to put in that kind of time to reach. Yeah. Well, especially for somebody who didn't do it as a kid. So I was like, I need to just, I should mention like in Miami, there's kids that were going to new world school of the arts, at, you know, starting at age 14. And so they could play circles around me when I got there. And so I just like, I looked at everybody and I was like, I kind of, sink or sink or swim kind of thing. I've just got to like buckle down. So that was the hardest I've worked at anything. And um, what's kind of cool is like, I had some time over the break for the first time ever. I think COVID kind of gave us a longer winter break. I've got tenure. And so I kind of got back into practicing with that kind of intensity and there's nothing better. I feel like being intense about something like really working hard and chasing after something with a great deal of intensity and a great deal of focus makes me feel most alive. So, so that, that, that's a good segue into my, how would you define success? Huh. I know it's a hard question, but, mm. I, and again, everyone has a different, I'm just curious. You, you've reached tenure, you're a tenured professor, you know, that's as in that field is pretty much, at least a peak. Yeah. But for you personally, how do you define success? You know, your kids say to you, what does it mean to be successful? I always tell them if whoever has most money is going to be most successful. No, I'm just kidding. I don't say that. Um, <laughs> I was like, wait, but actually the study showed that that's not true. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, 
I mean, you know, there's that, that Emerson quote that I kind of like. It's like to laugh a lot, to, you know, win the respect. Yeah, it's it's so good. And there's so much a little better than you found it. Yeah, there's so much to that. Mm. I mean, one thing I noticed is that I had COVID back in March and came close to what I think was uh, I had a close call, put it that way. And so um, coming out of that, you know, at the couple nights, you're just like up at night and you're making deals with the higher power to help you get through this. And like at some point I came out of that and I'm like, I have a limited amount of time on this planet. And I, you know, I think I knew that theoretically, but I knew it viscerally for the first time. And so I think that the goal of life, the success would be to live as best you can with each mo in each moment with as much intensity as you can. That's what I feel like success would be. And so like, I'm trying to figure out how to get there. And I think most of it has to do with health, honestly, and a little bit of meditation. Um, and being at the keyboard actually allows me to focus on that, which is great. Well, I, I came up with two thoughts from that. Uh, that. One of my favorite TED Talks ever is Inside the Mind of a Procrastinator by Tim <laughs> Urban. And it's really funny and really good. But, but at the end of it, he gets kind of deep mm -hmm. where he shows a graphic of boxes. And every box represents a week of, your, of a normal 85-year-old life. And he's like, look at the boxes. They're just, you know, they're not as many as you think. Yeah. Um, and for me, I think, you know, I, I credit my view of success somewhat to, you know, my father, my grandfather. And it's, you got to love what you do. You have to want to get up every day and do what it is you're doing. And they both, you know, had long careers that they loved. And I think it's hard. I think the challenge for my children at the moment is figuring out what that is. Mm. What is it that brings you joy? What is it that brings you meaning? Yeah. And then do that. Well, so I'm, I'm just so much more focused on, and this is like a kind of a momentous, like middle-aged thing anyway, but I just feel uh, like post-tenure, I'm much more focused on process than I ever was before. I've, I've always been focused on results and goals and like long-term planning. And I think that I'll never get away from that. That's just kind of who I am. I kind of hardwired as a strategic thinker to do that kind of thing. But I've often overlooked I would say how important savoring and savoring the process and inhabiting the moment is and I feel like there's like the sages throughout the ages who have already answered this question and I should just be like looking into them which is kind of what I'm doing well so. there's a great expression which is the journey is the destination yeah uh, to me I think that sums a lot of what you're talking about so let me with that in mind what what inspires you well I mean right now what inspires me is um, I would say becoming a better saver of life. And so um, that's related to that, I would say near death kind of thing that I had. And, um, and that includes like savoring people more and understanding people more, which is something that I have, um, you know, everybody has like, I've discovered maybe you've discovered this too, that for every strength that somebody has, there's like a, a con, there's like a, there's absolutely a weak side to that strength. Like whatever, whatever you've decided to favor, you've also allowed something to else to atrophy. For me, it was like, I favored materials, like learning how to master a instrument. And so spending hours and hours in front of that and what that is 
kind of created is like a vacuum in terms of like trying to figure people out and figure out how wonderful they are. So like uh, at 48, I'm like trying to kickstart my interest in psychology and what makes people tick and like really enjoying them. Um, and then, so that's part of it. And then another thing that really inspires me right now is like getting into stuff that I overlooked my entire life. Literature, um, you know, I didn't take one English class at Amherst College, which is kind of like a, a rare feat. Um, and uh, I made up for it. I took a lot. So. <laughs> and just like getting into the, the world has like so many rich things to offer. Right. And like um, it's just so easy to tunnel vision your way toward goals without really savoring all of those great things that the world has out to offer. And I, I did see I know you want to say something. I'll just say one thing. I also saw that I can't remember who it was, but there's somebody who's like really heavy who basically realized on their deathbed that there was nothing quite as beautiful as an, a tree. And I was like, okay, so that shows me like, you should just be savoring everything. Like I'm going to seek out the best stuff because I feel like I should, but really I should be like just enjoying everything. And so that's well, what inspired me. Because in, in some ways, one of the debates I have had over the years um, is whether it's better to be a generalist or an expert. Hmm. And, you know, I look at some people in my life going up and you actually were one. I was like, oh, he's, an, you know, a jazz expert, you know, and, mm. and not in the academic when you were performing mm. as a performer, you really had focused and you talked about that intensity and it results in you having a, a certain level mm. of competency that only comes from that intensity. Yep. Uh, and as you said, requires foregoing other things that might be interesting you know i think and I, so i guess in terms of trying to achieve a certain level you need to focus you need to have intensity but then what are you giving up and so it's that that yeah. kind of struggle that i um i i continue to think is interesting you know? well and so i'll just say another thing about that too because with the piano if you don't, if you're not getting something right, if you're not getting something together, you can't blame anybody else. Like I can't blame my parents for not setting me up with piano lessons earlier or whatever. I guess that's like the best I could do, but really it's on you. And there's something really refreshing about that because you don't have any other of this random people behavior to account for. But in my academic job, I'm recognizing that there's like this whole world of people behavior that I've kind of, I don't want to say I've ignored it, but I've just not favored trying to understand it. And so, um, and that stuff is kind of terrifying because people are, will hit you with stuff that you did not expect and you can't control. And so like how to deal with those situations where you can't control people is something that I'm kind of passionate about understanding better. I love that. Uh, yeah, and it's funny, people like Malcolm Gladwell and this guy, Adam Grant, they're yeah. focused on people. And yeah. behaviors and and i'm finding i always find when i you know or uh, the guys who did um freakonomics that they're yeah. looking at what makes people tick and why certain people have this success or this failure and, and things of that nature and it's well you're it's, I, I mean you're doing it right now you're doing it and i feel like you've always been kind of more more oriented toward that than a lot of people certainly me but actually a lot of people i knew at amherst you know you were very um yeah, I would say you you got a uh, certain emotional intelligence that a lot of people were were missing out on even back then. I'll just 
without diving, I'll say thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Considering my mother, uh, you know, teaches emotional intelligence from a consulting perspective. Okay. (laughs) I didn't even know. My wife is now, you know, becoming a discussion certificate in cultural intelligence. There's a lot to unpack Uh there. Uh, But but it's interesting. I think at our age, we're starting to get more reflective. So with that in mind, if you could give your 21-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, man, that that is an awesome. I have to say that's an awesome question. It's not, um, I don't think I was the first one to ask it, but I, I like including it. I'm going to just answer it in a circuitous way because I watched the whole episode or the whole series, The Office, from front to back, just like I did with Seinfeld and Cheers because I was sick and I could, didn't have any energy. Office is great. And if you watch it all the way through, like I did the last episode, which is a dual episode, it gets really, really intense. Like it's just kind of funny the whole way through, but then it gets really intense. Those last two episodes. And they realize that somebody has been kind of like filming them the whole time. And like, there's this like whole spoiler thing alert. where they spoiler alert. Sorry. Yeah. They're able to like kind of right, watch back. And it just made me think like, what if I live my life as if, as as if I were my 60 or 70 year old self looking back at my life right now. You know what I mean? Like if I were that person, like what if I tried to live my life with like more wisdom than I have right now? Um, If that makes any sense. So like if I told my 21 year old self, like, Hey, bam, like, you know, don't, don't party so much or, you know, whatever, don't, uh, get so worked up about blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's hard one experience. It's kind of impossible. They say that, you know, youth is wasted on the young. Yeah. It's kind of hard to, I would say the, I would probably say live with more intensity, like, you know, let your passion show, let your awesomeness show and don't be afraid of hiding it or don't try to conceal your enthusiasm for stuff. Like that'd be, that'd be my thing, you know, like, I I think sometimes, you know, teenagers and even adults, they kind of front and they kind of try to hide their, their true passion. And, um, Mm. I don't know. It's kind of, it's unfortunate to see my, my son right now as a teenager. I see him like cloaking that stuff. And, um, I must be like a sort of like an, an, uh, wrapped up in this idea that you need to individuate and become your own person. So you kind of close off to stuff, but it's also that teenagers are mean i know <laughs> right it, some of it is i think just self-preservation yeah yeah um, yeah but i agree that i think that's the beauty of you know even if i look at some of the people who are you know teenagers friends of my of my daughters and you can see the ones who are comfortable in their own skin mm-hmm. in, that's right and then the vast majority who aren't it's the exception yeah. for sure yep and i think that getting comfortable with your skin just takes a different amount of time for different people and um and I think it's a lifelong thing. Right. And then it's also like, don't get too comfortable in your own skin. Like you need to be open and like constantly be making new mental maps of the world and stuff like that. So, you know, um, but I would say the one thing that I noticed that I did sometimes back then as a 21 year old was um, I sometimes felt like just for social reasons, I would need to check my enthusiasm for stuff. And I don't necessarily know if that really gels all that well with my current opinion of life, which is that you should just a hundred percent all the time 
every moment, treasure it, you know, so. Well, I, I'm definitely uh, one who believes in uh, embracing enthusiasm. Yes, you are. Um, and the, the joke to Dodger share with you, the joke, which is when I first was starting my company, I was talking to my friend, uh, Mike in England and said, think about making fun, like the focus of you know, core value. He's like, hey, you're fun and, uh, and that might be a good thing, but some people may not take that, that you know, seriously. And he said, there's two things about you. He's like, one, you take what you do seriously, you just don't take yourself that seriously. And he said, and the other thing is that, you know, it's not just so much fun, but you really have a lot of enthusiasm for life and for what you're doing. And so the joke is that my title is, you know, president and CEO, and CEO stands for Chief Enthusiasm Officer. <laughs> awesome. Um, so let me ask you, what do you think is the next trend in music or in jazz? One of those. I think that the next trend is um, going to be virtual. So people are in the pandemic, they're trying to figure out how to create lives for themselves online. And so even though this music is predicated on really group improvisation, um, I think people are going to start figuring out ways to do more solo stuff and then more recorded collaborating, you know, collaborative stuff. Well, I'm, as I've expressed to you, I'm interested in, in virtual reality and and, you know, from a business perspective, they're talking about companies coming in to a virtual space where you can collaborate. And, and I know that some of the kind of Zoom uh, concerts have not been so successful. And even when they are, they're pre-recorded pieces that they then put together as opposed to a live yeah. experience. It's, it's, it'll be interesting to see if some sort of virtual reality concerts can be done in a way where everyone's playing live. And Oh, man. Um, so... When that hits, right, like when you're able to see holograms of people in your own room and you're able to pipe in great sound, surround sound music, I can't wait. <laughs> well, and what's next for you, Bill? So, you know, you're a uh, tenured professor, so you're almost on this book, but what's, what, what's the next thing that you're excited about in your life? Uh, I'm really excited about playing um, and getting better. And, um, and using that as a window or an avenue into discovering more about myself and more about my attentiveness and figuring out ways to, uh, to live with more intensity. So that's, a, that's sort of like a personal thing, which we've kind of already talked about on a professional front. Uh, I'm really interested in maxing out my impact. Right now I'm teaching I don't know, in a class, I might have 20, 20, 20 to 25 students. I would like to be able to reach out and deliver the same material to hundreds of thousands of students. So I'm like really interested, really passionate about technology, developing new ways to create content that goes online. And then the last thing I would say, the research angle that I'm really interested in is the intersection of jazz and classical music. And so I'm playing a lot of jazz music and I'm playing a lot of class classical music. And I'm trying to f note the similarities between the two and then also do a lot of research, which I uh, was trained to do, into what other people have said about this and, and how, how those things interact. Because, you know, we'd love to believe that this, this world is a small place and that everything belongs to everybody and that everything is kind of, it's all music and it's, we all should like get along and stuff like that. But people draw boundaries 
often for specific reasons, some of them defensive and some of them quite valid. And so like figuring out those things is, is important to me. I'm going to get back to the jazz classical piece uh, at the end, but this is where now up to the rapid fire questions, which don't always go as rapid as I want. So just kind of, you know, try and give me your, your knee jerk thoughts. Um, so is it better to be a planner or a doer? Doer. Should stories always have happy endings? No. Do you have a favorite emoji? Thumbs up. If you had to sing a karaoke song, what would your go-to song be? Living on a Prayer. Do you have a favorite social media platform? No. All right, what is your favorite social media platform? <laughs> you had to choose one. YouTube. Name a book that left a lasting impression on you. Jorge, Jorge Luis Borges, Collected Fictions. Name one of your favorite movies. Goodwill Hunting. Uh, what's the one thing you can't live without? Putting your family aside. One thing I can't live without? Mm-hmm. Playing piano. And if you could be credited with inventing something, what would it be and why? Um, okay, this is the only non-rapid fire one, but I'm in the middle of developing a game that I think I would love to see like on everybody's iPad. I love it. Uh, I want to just, you know, before we wrap up, um, you talked about this new kind of content series of the intersection between classical music and jazz music. And I love the idea of taking a piece of classical music and making a jazz version of that. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. Can you give us an example of that? Uh, how you, how you approach that and maybe show us on the piano? Sure. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll do that with the song that I intro. A little Mozart. Start with the Mozart. Yeah. The Mozart. So, so one of the things about that Mozart piece, that's kind of interesting is it's a Turkish March. And, um, you know, the, the Turks were uh, about to invade Vienna at some point. And a lot of the Janissary bands that um, were part of the Turkish military ended up in Vienna. That stuff, the Janissary music sounds very, well, if I played some for you, you'd be like, that's brash, that's loud. That's like meant to, it's meant to strike fear. <laughs> fear in people and actually the the janissary march was like left 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 right left which is left left right left so mozart incorporates that but i don't think that he got like the turkish modes right at all so what you hear is like a viennese composer basically vienneseizing what he heard in this Turkish music. And so I've kind of been dealing with my own way of playing this and trying to think about ornaments, um, which people throw in the music, that's little crunches and different kinds of things. And, um, and I feel like Turkish, Turkish modes do a lot more ornamentation than is present in this piece. There's a lot more, uh, well, the sounds are different. So I've been trying to incorporate a little bit of that element into this version of it, as well as just some straight up jazz improvisation. Um, so, and, uh, I guess the thing about this is I'm still going to try to keep the March feel of it kind of, but then I'm going to 
I don't know. I'll, I'll probably bust into some other weird stuff too. So we'll see. I'm not, this is not a finished work by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, here we go. That's the original version, right? like pop ending or something. You get the idea. I so yeah, there's like a lot of stuff going on in there. And I'm still, you know, like I'm trying to figure out what's fun is I'm trying to figure out what's tasteful, what sounds stupid. Um, there's a lot of people that have played this song, by the way, in ragtime because ragtime was written in March time. And I always find that stuff sounding a little bit too corny. And uh, so anyway, that's, that's kind of where I'm at with that right now. Awesome. I look forward to uh, seeing that evolve and come Thank to you. fruition. So I'll be watching, which, uh, so where can people uh, learn more about what's going on with Dr. Bears? Yeah, I've got a website, uh, awesome. bearsmusic.com. And then I've got a LinkedIn account, which is going to be up and running and killing pretty soon. Can't wait to see that. Yep. So, sorry, what, what's the website again? We'll put it in the show notes. With... Bearsmusic.com. Bearsmusic.com. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Bill, I could talk to you, as I often do, for a long time. Um, you now, I think, get the record as my longest podcast. There was one other that was off the top. I don't, if not the longest, the second longest. Uh, and it's it's a credit to you having a lot of interesting things to say and, and my enjoyment of conversing with you. Oh, likewise. Um, and so I want to say thank you for sharing so honestly uh, with me about your view of the world and it's, it's how it's changed over time, which is, has been really uh, quite interesting, how the dots have connected as you've moved on in different sections of your life. So just thanks again so much and, and thank you for helping us. I appreciate it, Jeffrey. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for taking your time to listen to this podcast. Please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform so you don't miss any future episodes. If you could also do me a favor and please leave a review on iTunes, I would really appreciate that. Remember, story matters and is the best way to connect the dots.